Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast, Insights Segment, where we investigate major topics that are shaping biotechnology today. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm your host, Jenna Glatzer, and I'm here with my co-host. Hi, I'm Gustavo Carrizo. Our guest today is Dr. Alex Harding. Alex is currently a Senior Vice President of Business Development and Corporate Strategy at Remix Therapeutics, a Boston-based biotech developing small molecules that alter RNA processing prior to protein translation. In addition to his role at Remix, Alex is also a practicing physician, having trained at Johns Hopkins and Mass General, as well as an entrepreneur in residence at Atlas Ventures. Alex received his MD from Johns Hopkins and his MBA from Harvard Business School. We're really excited to hear more about his career and his experience in a variety of biotech roles. So, Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, happy to be here. So, typically, we always start by asking to hear more about what someone's current role is, but I know you have such an interesting career path. I'm not even sure where to start. Um, but maybe if you could tell us a little bit more about your role at Remix Therapeutics, and we'll dig a little bit deeper into that too, as well as your other roles later. Sure. Um, I guess maybe I'll answer that. Um, by starting a little bit back, um, I was at Atlas Venture, um, which is an early stage, basically company formation, venture capital firm based in Cambridge, Mass. Um, and I worked on getting th this idea of modulating RNA processing using small molecules. Um, and I did that with uh, someone named Pete Smith, who was an entrepreneur in residence at Atlas at the time. And uh, eventually it turned into Remix and we got some seed funding and then raised some more funding later on. And I saw that I was still at Atlas, but I saw the progress that the team was making and uh, the, um, on the science and just in general, the quality of the people that were joining the company and decided that I wanted to be a, more of a part of it than just being on the investment side. And so I jumped into the company and the business development function uh, in August of 2020. So it's been about a year and a half now. Um, and business development is sort of a uh, I don't know, it's sort of a strange term that I think people who are not in the field um, sometimes kind of wonder what it what it means, um, what the significance of it is. Um, I think the simplest way of thinking about it is there are the people in the company, and the most important people in the company are the ones that are doing the science that are actually advancing the technology the company is working on. Um, but those people need money in order to run their experiments um, and pay for equipment and reagents and everything. And so that's where business development comes in. Um, and a, in a small stage biotechnology company, you don't typically have multiple different segmentations within business development. Usually someone like myself is, is doing everything, um, pursuing all avenues to try to bring funding into the company. Um, and so there's two broad categories of that. One is raising uh, equity money investor dollars, basically venture capital money or money from other types of investors, um, including IPOs eventually. Um, and then the second category is money from partnerships with pharmas or bigger biotech companies. Um, and so I work on both of those things. And that's kind of the core business development function. Um, corporate strategy which is also in my title, is related, but it's a bit different. It's, it's usually um, a little bit more of an internal strategy role. And so for me, um, I come from, the, as you had mentioned, a medical background and um, investment background. And so I have a lens on 
um, therapeutic approaches that can be helpful. And I um, am involved in things like thinking about what our pipeline should be, what targets we should be going after, um, and thinking about it from a clinical standpoint, as well as more of an investor perspective. And so that's kind that's in a corporate strategy is a pretty fuzzy term that can mean a lot of different things to different people. But in my case, it, that's a big part of it is thinking about our kind of pipeline strategy, what we're going to work on in the company. Obviously, that's a that's a really important decision. And I'm not doing that on my own. But um, it's it's something that I do spend time on. That's really interesting. Like I was wondering about when you said, well, you know, when I were in Atlas Venture that you wanted to be working with, with Remix. And I, I just wondered about, you know, from your path, like from medicine at the beginning, like if you already had that entrepreneurial mindset in like, or was something that you really wanted to do already when you were in medicine or, you know, after all of your, um, you know, your experience in Atlas Venture and that suddenly, you know, like came to you to say, oh, actually I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to be on the other side. Yeah, you know, it's, I think it's based on, I, I, so the short answer is I came in Alice thinking that I did want to eventually be an operator in a company. Um, but the reason that I had that view is based on a couple of different experiences that I'd had up to that point. So uh, going back the furthest, um, and Gustavo, we, we talked about this on a prior call, I had done some work uh, starting a nonprofit down in Ecuador. Um, and that was after college, before I started med school. My first experience starting an organization and, and trying to get it off the ground. And um, so I learned a lot during that process about sort of entrepreneurship. And it's albeit in a nonprofit setting, but there's still a lot of similarities. And so I think I realized during that experience that I like to be hands on and I like sort of the fluidity and fast pace of a startup environment. Um, and then secondly, I had, uh, I did my residency in internal medicine at Mass General Hospital in Boston. And I had a great experience there. Specifically, I really enjoyed working with the teams of residents. Um, and for example, when I was um, a senior, junior resident or senior resident supervising interns and medical students, I really enjoyed that aspect of the of the, of the job. Um, I really enjoyed working together alongside other people and venture capital is a, it's a great, great career, objectively a great career. But one thing that it's got a little bit less of is the teamwork kind of environment. Um, and I knew that that was something that I really valued and wanted to have more of. So that had attracted me to the idea of working in a company. Um, so Alice was an excellent, fantastic experience. No regrets at all that I did that. And I learned a ton from it. But I, I probably knew all along that I was eventually going to move into a company. In my experience, I had like I met uh, PIs in in the academic system where they are still as well. They have the lab running, but at the same time, they also see patients. And you know, like I, I really wonder about if you can comment a little bit as well about being in biotech, um, but still, you know, seeing your patients. Um, and so, yeah, it's a very interesting perspective. And like, how do you live that um, day by day? And and, you know, and how also like that shapes, you know, the, how do you see the world from the biotech side? If you see those patients that they need to be treated for certain things and like, you know, what, what is unique from, from that experience for you? Yeah. You know, it is definitely unusual, uh, what I'm doing and, but it's not too dissimilar from what you're describing of PIs who are clinician science, physician scientists. So there's sort of a classic structure, an 80-20 structure for physician scientists that are 80% in the lab, 20% in clinic. 
So that could depend, it could take many forms, but one form is they're doing four days a week in the lab and one day a week in clinic. Um, what I'm doing is somewhat similar to that. It's just that instead of doing the time in the lab in a, in an academic setting, I'm my, my full-time job is in biotech in an industry setting. Um, and, and for me, the reason that I, I'd say, actually, there's very few people that, that do that, that are in biotech and continue to practice medicine. You'll see it sometimes most commonly among people who are like a chief medical officer or are involved in clinical development. Maybe they, for example, are an oncologist. They're working in an oncology company running clinical trials, but they still see some, some cancer patients. Um, that's, that's, that's something you do see occasionally. It's pretty unusual to see someone in business development who's still seeing patients. I know a couple of um, of docs who are still actively practicing who are in venture capital, um, but it's really just a very small number. Um, the reason I do it fundamentally is that I just love seeing patients and wasn't ready to give that up and still not ready to give that up. Um, and so what I do is I have a full-time job at Remix. It's, you know, it's five days a week. Um, but I do about, a, about eight hours a week in clinic and it's in an urgent care setting. So it's either an evening, say like three to 9 PM, or it's a weekend day, which is an eight hour day on like either a Saturday or a Sunday. Um, and, and for me, it's a way that I can get in, I can see patients. I get, um, a lot of enjoyment out of doing that. And it's not too intrusive upon my job in biotechnology. I don't have a ton of outside of clinic follow-up work that I have to do, which can be burdensome for some, um, some specialties, but it's a great way for me to, to kind of stay fresh and, and continue to be a doctor, continue to take care of patients at the bedside, which is just something I really enjoy doing. Yeah. It also must give you just a really kind of unique bird's eye view on, you know, the entire process of drug development, all the way to actually seeing a drug or a new therapeutic make a difference in your patients' lives that you're treating. Um, and so I guess a follow-up to that is, are there any kind of areas of science now or areas of biotech? And I, I, we can talk about Remix in a second, but um, you know, just different trends or novel developments that you're really excited about. Yeah, you know, I think... There's there's a few areas that I think are really exciting emerging areas, and I've I've written about some of these before um, in terms of modalities, and I, I won't focus on remix modalities for <laughs> remix related modality for this this response because it's obviously biased. But outside <laughs> of what remix is doing, um, one one area that I'm excited about is kind of conjugated drugs. For example, antibody drug conjugates (ADCs). Um, there's been a few a few ADCs, several ADCs now that have been approved um, and are having huge impact on patients. And it's an area that I'm interested in because my, my father has has uh, has uh, bladder cancer and has been on two different ADCs and has had really good responses to both of them, gotten a lot of benefit out of them. And so um, that's something that I've ha I have a personal connection with. But beyond ADCs, um, similar kind of, um, I guess, conceptually analogous approaches are things like radio pharmaceuticals. So these are um, molecules that are made by liganding a, a, a radioactive isotope to some kind of targeting moiety, whether it be an antibody fragment or a peptide or an aptamer, a variety of different 
moieties that can be used to target to a cell surface receptor. And actually, there was just uh, news today from Novartis that they had a, a product that just got approved by the FDA for radiopharmaceuticals. So that's an exciting technology. I think there's a lot of emerging work in that field. And then there's conjugated oligonucleotides, which I think are interesting. So, um, you know, oligonucleotides have had a lot of success in getting into the liver, but frankly, less success in getting into other tissues. But one of the interesting approaches there is to conjugate them with some kind of targeting moiety. Again, could be an antibody, could be other types of moieties, small molecule, peptide, um, or other types of protein um, targeting moieties. And, and, and those um, also seem to have promise still very early. Some, there's some that are in clinical development. A lot of them are still preclinical, but are showing nice tissue distribution to tissues outside of the liver, which is, which is pretty exciting to see. So I think that concept of, of liganding two different modalities together, one as a um, targeting moiety and one as a payload, are, that's a pretty exciting concept. And there's, there's a lot that can be done within that, that broader area. Yeah. And getting to Remix, so I, I'm sure most people by now are very familiar with RNA therapeutics and yeah. mostly based on the development of vaccines against COVID-19. And it seems like, you know, this field lately is enjoying a bit of a renaissance. Um, and I know Remix is taking a bit of a unique approach to drugging RNA. So I'm wondering if you could uh, kind of go into more detail about you know, why target RNA processing? Um, what is the advantage to doing that? Yeah, so, um, yes, you're absolutely right. RNA is is definitely having a moment right now, and it's driven mainly by the mRNA vaccines. And obviously what we're doing at Remix is very different uh, because we're using small molecules to modulate mRNA expression. Um, but I guess the the, the commonality is that we do see RNA as an important kind of cellular information storage uh, device. And, and so Moderna and Pfizer are delivering mRNA into the cells to produce a, a protein message. And we are modulating the mRNA within the, that's endogenously being produced within the cell. Um, but I guess that the commonality is that we're both doing something to the mRNA and it's having downstream effects on protein, um, which is obviously core to some kind of fundamental biological principles. So it shouldn't be surprising, but it's taken a while for therapeutics to, to move that way. Um, what we're doing, and you asked why RNA processing. Um, so traditionally targeting RNA directly with small molecules has been very difficult to do. And one of the reasons for that is that RNA, unlike proteins, is pretty floppy. Um, and they can move from one conformation to another rapidly. Um, and that makes it hard to find a binding pocket on RNA similar to what small molecules can do on the protein level. But by focusing on RNA processing, really what we're doing at Remix is, is targeting RNA protein complexes. So these are complexes that are involved in the processing of the RNA. That means RNA splicing, alternative splicing, 5' capping, polyadenylation, whatever is being done to the pre-mRNA before it turns into mature mRNA. And those proteins are important for providing structure and stability to the RNA so that there are um, better binding sites for our small molecules. 
that's really, really interesting. And it'll, it sounds like it allows you so many different kind of areas to explore. Like you're not limited by any kind of disease indication or clinical strategy. And, you know, whether that be like a knockdown or a turning up expression approach, it sounds like it allows a lot more flexibility. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. In principle, our technology could be applied to any disease area. Mm-hmm. And as you said, it can be done to knock it can be used to knock down mRNA, it can be used to increase expression or correct expression, rescue spli- uh, misplacing events, for example, and a mutated gene. Um, there is a last um, news that we saw in, in Remix um, about um, partnering with Janssen. Um, we would like to know a little bit more about this, this type of deals that happens in, in biotech in general and how they are structured. If you can talk, of, of course, you don't, you don't need to do it from specifically for Remix, but based on your experience, if you can tell us a little bit more about, about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I would just take a step back and ask the question, why do you do a deal with a pharma company? And there's multiple reasons why. Obviously, one of those is cash. So bringing money into the company, a company like Remix is early, early in its development and therefore higher risk. Um, and so our cost of capital right now is quite high compared to what it would be once we're a clinical company that's public. Um, and so the, the value of cash to us today is a lot greater than it will be in the future. Um, and that's just kind of fundamental finance principle. So getting cash into the company now that allows us to extend our what's called the cash runway, the amount of time we have before we run out of cash is very important. Um, and that allows us to advance our, our science so that we can, we can hit important milestones, generate data that will allow us to lower our cost of capital so that then we can raise subsequent financings um, without having to dilute our, our owner's um, share um, as much. So, so that's the value in, of having non-dilute, what's called non-dilutive funding funding that doesn't um, water down the ownership percentage of our current investors. Um, There's also obviously value down the line from if we have milestones that we hit with these programs that we're in collaboration with for Janssen, we'll get additional cash payments in the future. For example, you know, clinical trials are a typical milestone um, stage. So if you hit a phase one, phase two, phase three, commonly, in deals like this, you would get cash milestones for hitting those milestones, as well as um, for commercial regulatory getting a drug approved and commercial getting to certain sales thresholds. Um, and then lastly, royalties down the line, once you actually have a drug on the market, um, typically companies will get a percentage royalty out of, out of that as well. So the money is important, right? But it's not the only thing. Um, and I think a very, very important other feature is validation and having a deal with a large pharma like Janssen that has a really solid reputation for being diligent and thorough goes a long way because anyone who looks at that deal knows that Janssen did a lot of work behind the scenes, really looking under the hood, going through all of our data um, and, and spending a lot of time with a lot of scientists investigating it thoroughly. And decided that it was high quality and that they wanted to, to work with us. And so that sends a really powerful signal to other people. And those other people include investors, you know, potential future investors, I mean, 
as well as people that we'd want to recruit into the company to work at Remix and uh, key opinion leaders. So experts in fields that we want to have as advisors to the company, they can see that that Janssen deal provides a certain amount of cachet. Okay, these guys know what they're doing. They're serious and I want to work with them. Um, and so, so that's a really, really important additional feature of why we would do a deal. And there are others, but I think those two are probably a couple of the biggest. Um, in our particular case, and, and you alluded to this, Jenna, is that we have such a broad potential range that we can cover with our technology. As a company, we have a little over 40 people in our company now. We can't possibly go after all of those, those opportunities ourselves but, uh, on our own. And so we can tap into the expertise and resources of a company like Janssen, the largest pharmaceutical company in the world. Um, to help advance those programs that otherwise we probably just wouldn't have the, the, the resources internally to be able to go after. And so it's a way to capture value for the company and also honestly for, you know, hopefully for patients in the future from something that we probably wouldn't be able to, to do on our own just because of the simple bandwidth that we have as a company. Yeah. I mean, it's such an exciting opportunity to see all these ideas. Like you mentioned that you might not get to pursue on your own kind of be explored in real time, even simultaneously. And where that can actually drive value for patients is, I I think that's really, really interesting. And that was a very thorough explanation. (laughs) So thank you for that. Um, uh, I wanted to jump back a bit to kind of your role at Atlas. And so you mentioned that Atlas Ventures is a venture capital firm that focuses on early stage venture creation. Um, And I'm wondering if you could talk about kind of how that the venture creation angle differs than differs from maybe a more traditional um, kind of private stage venture capital firm um, and how a little bit also how you approach the ideation process when you're thinking about new company creation. Yeah. Um, and you're, you're absolutely right. There's, there's pretty big differences um, between what Alice is doing and then what some other venture capital firms are doing. And, and VC firms come in a bunch of different flavors across the full spectrum. So there's VC firms that are even earlier stage than Alice that exclusively do seeds and, and start their own companies. And they won't even look at anyone else's deals at all. Um, and then there's, comp- there's VC firms that are doing only crossover rounds, basically the last round before an IPO um, and maybe series, maybe some series Bs, but they're they're not really doing any seeds in series A's. And so you can fall, and, and that those are huge differences in terms of what, how you do your process of, of diligence on whether to make an investment. Um, I would say that company formation is a, it's a highly specialized art. You know, it's not something that someone can just jump into as an investor if they have experience doing series B's and think that they can suddenly start doing company formation. Um, because it is really quite different. Uh, you have to have, obviously, in any any of these investor roles, you have to have a, a good nose for the science, know whether there's high quality science going on. But company formation involves a lot more than that. It's a lot more hands-on and operational to actually take an idea and create a company around it. So it's it's about what thinking about what are the key milestones that, that this company is going to need to achieve in the next year or two on a seed uh, financing in order to get 
some kind of de-risking validation of the technology that, okay, this is, this is something interesting. This is worthwhile. This is worth raising a series A around. Um, so I'm designing the experimental plan for the first couple of years and the budget to go along with that. And then really crucially, figuring out who are the right people to run this company. Because the VCs at Atlas and at other uh, similar early stage firms aren't going to be doing it on their own. Um, and they need help from operators that have experience doing this kind of thing. So Atlas has a tremendous network, especially in the Boston area, um, but not, not exclusively in the Boston area, of entrepreneurs and scientists that have experience working in early stage companies um, and know how to get these companies off the ground. And so we can tap into that network to get these companies started. And the people are probably the most important part of the equation, right? The science is obviously important. You need to have a good scientific hypothesis and a view towards how that could become a product one day. But if the people aren't right, then it's not gonna work. And, and conversely, if the people are really, really good, the science is mediocre, the people can often figure out some kind of creative solution um, and pivot the, the company towards something that is gonna work. So that's really important. Um, and, and developing that network, that Rolodex, so to speak, is not something you can just snap your fingers and do. And, and, and Atlas has a really excellent network and certainly a few other VC firms do as well. I have a question about um, your role in Atlas now that we are talking about it. And because we, you know, as we presented at the beginning, um, your position is entrepreneur in residence. And we really want wonder about how that's really like differ from other, um, like, you know, um, roles about like partner or associate um, in a venture capital firm? Yeah, so um, a couple of points there. One is the, the distinction between the investment team and sort of everyone else. Um, so the investment team are the people that are actually making decisions on whether to invest in a company. So I'm an entrepreneur resident. So that means I'm not on the investment team. So an investment team is going to be the, the partners and then the principals, senior associates, and associates. That's essentially what the investment team is composed of. Um, an entrepreneur in residence is someone who can work as, um, as an advisor, can help to... Uh, actually, what I should say is, to preface this is entrepreneur in residence can take a huge range of different manifestations. Um, so my role as an entrepreneur in residence at Atlas is pretty... Um, light and pretty flexible. So I do things like sometimes someone will send me an idea for a company and I'll pass the slides or the whatever idea along to someone on the investment team that I think might be interested in it. I might join a call. I, I had a phone call with um, a member of the Alice investment team yesterday where there was a, an academic that was pre presenting an idea for a new company. Um, but I'm really there to kind of facilitate introductions. And then secondly, there might be some cases where I might have experience with something. Um, and so people on the investment team might run an idea by me to get my feedback on it um, as sort of a, a component of the diligence process. Um, but I'm not really directly involved in, in making decisions. Um, on the other hand, there are some entrepreneurs and residents who it's their full-time job to be an EIR and they're at Atlas kind of sitting in the Atlas office and they're looking for their next company, basically. So there might be um, a former chief scientific officer, for example, who is looking for their next job and they want to start a company. And so they come into Atlas without anything um, planned and are just looking at different ideas that come through the door. 
and deciding which one of those that they want to work on and helping, helping the investment team kind of put the plan together for starting that company. Nice. And when you're involved in, you know, kind of starting the company, how long do you typically end up staying with that one company? I, I would imagine this differs from firm to firm. Yeah, this differs a lot from firm to firm. So there's some firms like Third Rock Ventures is an example of this. Third Rock is a really successful, excellent company formation VC firm based in Boston. And their model for associates is that you're going to come in as an associate. You might work on two projects, but one of them is going to be your, your main project, so your home base. And then once that, that project gets off the ground and gets its Series A, you're going into that company full-time. Um, so you might go in as, for example, like a director of business development or something like that. Um, and the expectation is that you will move into that company. So you're pretty much 100% dedicated. On the other hand, Atlas doesn't take that approach. Um, Atlas, the associates and senior associates by default are staying with, with Atlas. And so the company gets started and you're pretty hands-on initially as you're getting the team in place. Once that team is in place and the seed, seed money comes in and the plan is, is set, then um, you, you gradually ease off of that company. So you might spend up to a third or a half of your time on one company early on, but you're easing off of it over the course of a few months as the company gets off the ground. So maybe by the six month mark or so, you're back down to sort of more of a sustainable, call it like 10% of, of your time dedicated to that company. Um, and, and so that allows you at Alice, you can work on starting multiple companies. Um, and I, I did have the, the opportunity to do that. I worked on starting several different companies when I was at Atlas as an associate and then senior associate. And then just uh, of those, one of them was Remix and I was really excited about Remix. And so I decided to jump into that one. That was really a personal decision by me because as I mentioned, you know, really liked being an operator, but it's not something that you're necessarily expected to do uh, by rule or by any kind of formal or informal policy at Atlas. You know, I, I like how you, you are explaining us absolutely all the different roles. And I think this is going to be really valuable for our listeners as well. Um, they may be interested about how it's, you know, being in a venture um, capital firm and, you know, all the things that you can really do because it's not common that you hear um, unless you really network with people and ask specifically for those positions. But um, I think I have like a final question about Atlas in general and trying to understand as well what is a board observer. Um, and if you can also like uh, talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, that's a good question, and it's it's a good um, extension of the discussion we just had about how you get companies started. Because once that company started, typically um, the partner on the deal. So when I was an associate or senior associate at Atlas, I worked with a partner, and so um, uh, there was always a partner that was sort of the lead champion on the deal, and that that partner may even take an, an interim CEO role in the company, and then once the company is up and running and and like the legal docs have been signed and the company exists formally, that partner will be on the board of directors. Um, and then often what happens is the, the more junior person on the investment team, whether it's an associate, senior associate principal, will take a board observer seat. So that person is able to sit in on board meetings, contribute to board meetings. Um, they don't have a formal voting right because the partner on the deal has that voting right to represent the VC firm. Um, 
but it's a great opportunity to see the inner workings of a company at the board level, which otherwise, honestly, you don't really get much exposure to. Um, like if you're in a company at a more junior position, like a director or something, you're probably not in the room for a lot of those board conversations. And so um, it's a great way to, to see how boards work um, that you can get pretty early on in your career by being in VC. Following up on that, when I kind of wanted to move into, you know, thinking about advice for early career scientists, um, as well as, you know, graduate students that are listening and thinking about roles that are maybe more on like the BD side or even general sort of venture capital roles. Um, and I was wondering if you could kind of comment on your decision to get the MBA. Obviously, you know, you're very entrepreneurial, um, but also if, you know, kind of what roles that might be especially pertinent for, or in fact, you know, a job requirement to have um, that it would benefit, you know, graduate students or uh, those with PhDs, MDs to pursue an additional MBA. Yeah. Uh, and I guess I'd start by saying, I don't know in the biotechnology industry, I don't know of really any jobs where an MBA is required. Um, but I'll, I'll give you the context of, of why I did the MBA. So I was at Johns Hopkins for med school. I had come from doing that. Um, I'd spent a year in Ecuador getting uh, that nonprofit called Water Ecuador started. And, um, and I had an understanding that business and management was important. But that's pretty much all I knew. Um, and I didn't get as you would expect, in med school, I didn't really get much exposure to management. And I felt like I wanted to learn more about how the management side of healthcare worked. And so um, around the end of my first year, I decided that you know I was interested in pursuing the MBA route. And so um, so I, I did. And I, I eventually, you know, I had to do all the preparatory work to get get into the business school. Um, and I, I did, I took two years off between my third and my fourth year. So I finished three years of med school and then I went to do the MBA and I was really clueless. Like I didn't know what I was, I just had an idea that I should learn something about this stuff, but I did not know much about it at the time. And so for me, the MBA was valuable to just get me exposed, um, to, to learn about what else is out there in healthcare beyond just directly taking care of patients, which is what I had, is what, what I had seen in med school. Um, so I think the people that are listening to your podcast are probably way ahead of where I was when I was making that decision. But, you know, for me, given that context, the MBA was really valuable because my courses exposed me to a lot of different facets of the healthcare industry. And then also equally or more important were the internships that I got to do. So I did an internship, um, at, after my first year, before starting my second year of the MBA, did an internship at BCG, um, Boston Consulting Group, um, and I was working on a, a payer case or a health insurance company project. Um, and so that was good exposure to something, an aspect of the healthcare ecosystem that I hadn't seen before. And then I did another internship after, after graduating, actually, before going back to med school after my second year at SR1, uh, which is a biotech venture capital firm. At the time, it was part of GSK. I've actually spun out from GSK since then. That was really a formative experience for me. I was first of all, I was working with a great mentor named Simeon George, who's a partner and actually runs SR1 now. Um, and then secondly, I just got exposed to some really exciting and interesting areas at that time. Uh, so this was 2014. 
it was right when CRISPR was coming out um, and cell therapy was was emerging as well. And so I was able to work, I, I was able to see one of the first pitches from CRISPR Therapeutics. Simeon ended up leading the Series A financing on, on CRISPR and was on the board for a long time at CRISPR Therapeutics. Um, and, and so that was really fun to just be there at the very early stages and see how that was all playing out. And it was clear even then that CRISPR was going to be a massively important technology. And then cell therapy, we worked on ideas. Uh, this is when Juno and Kite had really compelling data, but um, there wasn't, no one really knew what was the second generation going to be. And so we, Simeon and I kind of sat in a room and, and thought through, okay, what's the next cell therapy technology going to be? What This is really exciting, but what is there beyond CD19 autologous CAR T cells? Um, and we explored a bunch of different options. Eventually, Simeon ended up starting a couple of companies, Arcelix and, and Carta Therapeutics. And Carta is doing NK cell um, therapy. So it's like a little bit of a next-gen approach. Um, and so I was able to be there for that, which is a really interesting opportunity. And then lastly, I worked with Principia Biopharma, which was an SR1 portfolio company. Um, and that's an excellent, high-quality, small molecule company uh, that I got to do a indication prioritization project for, which is was fun and interesting for me. And Principia ended up getting bought by Sanofi for several billion dollars. So a, a really high quality company just to see how the, the executives in that company thought and acted was, was pretty interesting. So um, a really excellent experience and really set me up for going back into biotech after finishing residency. Yeah, I, it's it's really interesting that like when I hear all of that, all the things that you were seeing at that point, like I already get very excited, and I, I really wonder about because you said, well, you went to do the MBA, and then you, I, if I don't understand like wrongly, you came back to finish your MD. Yes. Yeah, so then after that SR one summer, which was awesome, I I went back to my fourth year of MBA and straight into my OBGYN rotation. So it was a massive transition back to clinical medicine, um, and then you know I finished out fourth year. So I guess you came back with without the energy because I mean you knew what you could do if you just finish your you know MD and what was coming for you for the future right um, compared with other people just finish the MD and then yeah. maybe go to see what they can do. Yeah, and I had a tough decision to make um, at that point, uh, which was, do I go and, and do a residency or do I finish the MD and then go back into biotech venture capital? Um, and I thought about that second option really seriously, but decided that I, I wanted to um, have the experience of learning how to really be a doctor, um, which you do in residency, not in med school. Um, and, I, I, and I'm glad I did that. Obviously, I, I said at the beginning of the podcast that I really value patient care. It's an important part of, of my identity, uh, something that I really enjoy doing. And so I was willing to take those, those three years um, to, to do that residency. And I, I think I grew a lot from doing that. Um, but it was a, a, a critical decision and, and not everyone would make the same decision. And it's really a personal one, depending on what your kind of priorities are in life. So, so um, everyone's going to, the right, right answer is going to be different for every person there. I agree. And just to um, get an extra advice, because you said that, you know, doing MBA was what brings you to get all this exposure to the biotech, um, you know, space. Um, but if you, you know, like, you know, other students would probably not like pursue an MBA in the middle of their PhD or like is the path, as you said, is going to be very different. Like, how do you advise maybe other students um, or grad students now that they want to get this exposure to biotech? Yeah, I mean, it, and it, it depends. There's so many different 
options and so many different circumstances that it's hard to give blanket advice. But one pretty good alternative to the MBA is to go into consulting. And so, to, for example, spend two years at McKinsey or at LEK working on life science um, cases, you'll get great exposure to sort of more of the business side of healthcare through that. Um, and, and you're getting paid to do it instead of paying tuition. Uh, the downside there is you're not going to have as much breadth of exposure as you're going to get in the MBA. The MBA is a little bit of a gentler path to take because um, you get to explore for yourself. If, if you're like me and you're pretty clueless, then you might benefit from the MBA because you can try out a bunch of different things. If you know, okay, I want to get into biotech, I want to, which I did not know when I started my MBA, I want to work in a biotech company, I want to be in business development then probably the more direct route is to go to, say, LAK and do two years there and then move into a biotech company. All right. Well, Alex, this was, I think, a really just incredibly valuable episode, not only for, I'm sure, our listeners, but also for me. I feel like I learned a ton about you know venture capital and of company creation. And again, ex- really just exciting work you're doing at um, Remix. So thank you again for taking the time. Absolutely. Happy to do it. Uh, It's fun talking with you both. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for updates about upcoming guests. And visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm Jenna Glasser. And I'm Gustavo Carrizo. Thank you for listening.